From that, we will start with a conversation with John Frankel, partner of FS Venture Capital. John, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So tell us about your investing focus. How big is the fund? What size investments do you make? Let's uh, get to know one another. So we're a New York-based seed stage firm. We look to invest in companies when they're just getting going, when there's three or four entrepreneurs in a room. And we really work hard to help build them up to being teams of 30 and 40 and beyond. So we invest from that seed round to an early B round. As I mentioned, we're based in New York. We invest across the country, um, primarily focused on the U.S. There's a couple of exceptions into Israel and uh, Canada and the like. And when we look at our portfolio, it's predominantly enterprise, um, probably about 75% enterprise, 25% consumer, with focuses on cybersecurity, AI, drones, and robotics, and of course, as we're based in New York, some fintech. Mm -hmm. And uh, when you say uh, seed, could you actually elaborate on that? How do you define seed? You know. Um, as I keep pointing out in these sessions, when I was uh, raising money in the throughout the mid-90s, I did three startups in the mid-90s, um, it was seed of Series A. But in the last few years, the seed ecosystem has become very segmented. There are tons of micro VC funds, and they each specialize in certain pieces of the seed equation. There is pre-seed seed, post-seed, pre-series A, series A. So if you were to pinpoint your preference, where would that be? Well, I, I, I think you're right. I think the language um, uh, does a disservice. We think of seed as being a million and a half round uh, at a mid to low single-digit valuation on the company. So it's when a company is just getting going. And, you know, our objective is because we run with a large team, is really to work with that company and help them understand all the pieces they don't have because they're a small team themselves. And we can bring a considerable amount to the table to help them understand the business side of what they're trying to do and really build it into a successful large franchise. We've been doing this now almost 10 years. And so, mm -hmm. you know, we have some larger companies in the portfolio, companies like Indiegogo and Ionic Security, Distill Networks, uh, and companies that have grown from, I think, um, I'll give you an example, we invested in Plated uh, a little under five years ago when there were seven people. When they sold to Albertsons recently, there were 700 people in the organization. Mm -hmm. So, um I imagine since you're doing enterprise um, to a large extent, you're seeing mostly SaaS business models. Is that an accurate uh, assumption? I mean, predominantly SaaS. Some are royalty-based, uh, but it's predominantly um, a software-as-a-service model, yes. So uh, before you're willing to put in a million and a half into a um, SaaS deal, what do you want to see in terms of validation? Is it revenue, pre-revenue? What kind of MRR if it's revenue? Can you double-click on that for us? Yes, well, so, so, so a point of clarification. The round size is 
uh, where we get started, often around about a million and a half to two million. Our initial mm -hmm. check is usually close to 600,000. So we like to syndicate deals. We like to bring other smart investors around the table. Um, we don't right. try to crowd others out around us. That's that's fine, but before a company can today, you know, before a company can raise a million and a half, two million dollars, it seems like even, you know, if you call that a seed round, you could also call that a small Series A or a pre-Series A. But whatever be the terminology, to put in that money, people are asking for validation already. Is that your point of view as well? That's that's what I'm trying to understand. Is what is it that you're looking for? Not always. Not always. It, it really depends on the entrepreneur, the mm -hmm. space they're going after, um, and the like. If someone comes in with uh, considerable domain expertise, capability, yeah. and the like, we're less focused on initial traction. It's nice mm -hmm. to have, but it's not necessary. You know, uh, there's a company called Drop Loyalty, which is cross-platform loyalty. They launched initially in Canada, they're now growing rapidly in the U.S. And mm -hmm. you effectively get points uh, for doing very, very little. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And they then allow you to spend those points on brands that you really care about. It's a very millennial-focused set of brands that they're working with. And when the CEO came in and we sat down with him, you know, we gave him a check based off of, you know, a business model. And now, a few years later, this is a company growing multiple folds year over year um, mm -hmm. and doing considerably well. So uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't have to be uh, a certain amount of MRR and a certain amount of traction. Uh, we're willing That's to good. look beyond just the metrics. That's good. This is, that point of view is becoming fewer and far between these days. Everybody wants people to do all the bootstrapping and validation and get to you know, a significant MRR before they're willing to write any checks. And that's, that's really tough for entrepreneurs. It, it is tough. Look, traditionally, you bootstrap. Then you raise, yeah. you know, somewhere between a, a quarter million to three quarters of a million from friends and family and maybe a couple of angels. And then that first institutional round, that million and a half, two million round, is where we tend to come in. Yeah. So uh, let's look at 2017. We are, you know, this is our last roundtable. We are about to close the year off. Um, you have, I imagine, seen thousands of deals this year. What are the trends in your deal flow? So what are the trends? Uh, you know, we, we've been leaning heavily into AI, cybersecurity, um, mm -hmm. uh, drones, robotics, FinTech, as I mentioned. And we're seeing a ton of opportunity in those spaces. Uh, and the reality is, I guess, AI isn't a space, it's a tool set. And so um, you're going to see AI embedded in almost everything over time, just the way mobile is uh, or SaaS is when you look at um, uh, enterprise. Yeah. With regard to um, other trends, obviously there's a lot of noise, excitement, and manic behavior around um, blockchain and ICOs. And mm -hmm. we're studying it and we're looking at it. Um, uh, but it's not necessarily an area that we think uh, institutional capital should be playing in today. 
Mm-hmm. Well, we're, uh, we're trying to understand the blockchain phenomenon and ICO phenomenon as well, and, and uh, it seems very capital intensive, although we have had some uh, entrepreneurs uh, actually come here. Vinnie Lingam has raised a $2 million um, on an ICO for his venture, which uh, he wasn't being able to raise venture capital for that particular venture, and he went and did it as an ICO. Uh, so he basically raised seed capital using an ICO. Are you seeing much of this uh, in your uh, orbit? Well, you, you shouldn't confuse an ICO with seed capital. You know, venture capitalists Normally not. Companies. <laughs> Normally no, 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 not, but, but, but this particular entrepreneur no, but, but, specifically said no, that. No, I understand, but I, and maybe I'm being pedantic here. The venture capitalists tend to invest in equity, and or lend money through convertible notes to convert into equity into companies. An ICO is an offering of coins, and those coins are, yeah. are generally controlled by a foundation, and they're separate right. from the company itself, which pays the people's employees. So there's a question of oversight. There's a question of governance um, that often isn't being addressed. Now, that being said, we definitely have seen some companies that cannot raise money from venture capitalists raising money on ICOs, and we're seeing some very interesting projects being kicked off through either an ICO or SAP, okay. a security for future token. Um, the valuations are about 100 times um, <laughs> what one might consider to be reasonable in some cases. And um, so it certainly gives a, a pause for thought here. And as we know, not all tokens are going to end up being valuable at the end of the day. So I think it's yes, an right. interesting space. I think as students of the market, we need to understand it. And yeah. uh, a ton of money will be made in that space, both by entrepreneurs and by investors. And also a ton of money will be lost in the space less so by entrepreneurs and more so by investors. So I think it's, it's, it's an it's a area that requires a lot of studying and understanding. And if, you know, the test for an entrepreneur really should be, does the business that I'm trying to build, does it require a blockchain token that yep. is not only sufficient but necessary? Yeah. And do, you know, will the solution be 10 times more efficient, or alternatively, be, you know, enable a solution at one-tenth the cost it would otherwise be. And I think if you hit those criteria, then it's incredibly valuable. But we've yeah. seen a lot of tokens for things which um, uh, seems tangential that there has to be blockchain involved. Yeah. So, you know, it's like, uh, to me, it seems like the early days of the crowdfunding um, trend, right? So for a while, everybody's like, oh, crowdfunding is going to solve all early-stage financing problems, and I never thought so. Crowdfunding eventually ended up finding its niche, and it hasn't become the be-all, end-all solution to early-stage financing at all. It has well, found I, its biggest niche 
uh, just a second, it found its biggest niche in, uh, you know, pre-ordering physical products usually, and, and that's the one place where it has made a significant difference in terms of early stage financing, but equity crowds, crowdfunding of very complex technologies just hasn't taken off. Well, it's kind of interesting. I would still say we're in the very early days. You've had some early adopters who've been burnt on some of these pre-ordering of products. And mm -hmm. I think the space has cooled off with regard to crowdfunding um, for, for product. Uh, I actually think the space probably shrunk last year. Uh, mm -hmm. That being said, we're investors in Indiegogo. Uh, Indiegogo has looked at the problem differently and they said equi equity funding for product is interesting. But what are the other things we can do to really help entrepreneurs? Mm -hmm. So they have a partnership with Arrow over building hardware. They have partnerships yep. with marketers. They build a marketplace, their on-demand space, uh, which um, uh, really allows for entrepreneurs, once the crowdfunding has ended, to have a virtual shop. They have a partnership uh, with Brookstone. Uh, they also do equity crowdfunding. And they've been very mm -hmm. successful in the space, very quiet and very successful. And then they launched, I believe, only last week, uh, a platform to support ICOs. And their first uh, ICO is actually going incredibly well. And I think what they bring to the table is something that's missing with a lot of these, which is credibility. You know, their projects that they're going to allow on their platform a pre-screen for being a scam or not a scam. I don't use mm -hmm. that term, but pre-screen for being reasonable. And um, they think that by really um, sort of providing a, uh, a legitimate uh, space for ICOs uh, to be issued, that they're actually doing mm -hmm. a service to space and a service to entrepreneurs, and I would agree. That is a very reasonable strategy for Indiegogo. Now, what uh, you mentioned that Indiegogo's uh, equity crowdfunding platform has been successful. What are the trends? What kind of ventures are gaining traction in the equity crowdfunding world of Indiegogo? Well, Outside I mean, so of the advanced product sales. Right. I think a lot of the things they've been going for are sort of what you might consider to be lower beta type projects ones which, mm -hmm. you know, may not be shooting 100 times returns, um, but nevertheless are ones where those businesses within the community can really do well. So maybe less of the kinds of things that the venture capitalists tend to put capital behind. But, mm -hmm. you know, as I say, I think we're in the early, early days of it. I think it's too early to say that crowdfunding is in the niche. And if you want to call an innings, I think we're somewhere between the first and second inning here with regard to um, the opportunities that crowdfunding will bring. So we have uh, entrepreneurs in our portfolio who may be interested in looking at uh, maybe working with Indiegogo on some of their equity funds, crowdfunding stuff. You know, we do a lot of bootstrapping-oriented uh, ventures. Our goal is not to fund with venture capital a million entrepreneurs. Our goal is to help a million entrepreneurs reach a million dollars in annual revenue. So we do support a lot of entrepreneurs that are not right. uh, hitting for the home runs or, or going for those uh, huge outcomes, outsized outcomes. So that there may be a, an opportunity for us to work with Indiegogo on some of these. And, and absolutely, absolutely. 
The uh, Chief Business Development Officer is Slava Rubin, who um, uh, co-founded the uh, company with Danae Ringelman, gosh, uh, over seven years ago. And okay. um, on Twitter, he's at, at GoGoSlava, so he's going to hate, hate me for, for putting out his Twitter handle, but he's got a great <laughs> project. You know, he's got a great well, project. Reach, him, reach out to, reach out you, to Slava. If you would, um, ask him to contact me, and then we can, I can you know, put him in touch with the, the projects that have, we have vetted and we, have, we think are, are good projects and that may be worthwhile for them to look at. So we can do it at the this dev level as opposed to the individual entrepreneur level. I think that's a great idea. But we'll just keep it between ourselves. Yes, I think so. <laughs> All right, so next question. <laughs> next question. Um, You've talked quite a bit about Indiegogo, which has been very interesting. Talk a bit more about your current portfolio. You talk about cybersecurity being an interesting area. Now, cybersecurity, as we both know from having been in this industry for a long time, is a very, very crowded market. From the beginning of venture capital, it has been one of the hottest areas of venture capital, and incessantly so. For 20 years, people have been invested in cybersecurity. So how do you far cybersecurity opportunities. We have cybersecurity in our portfolio as well. So help us understand wh what is the thought process that you apply for those kinds of deals? So we think it's the gift that keeps on giving because it's like an arms race. And as time goes by and new platforms come along, it's important to protect them. And there's a number of, I mean, we look at cybersecurity as really four main categories. One is perimeter protection. And so mm -hmm. companies uh, like Distill Networks sort of fit into that. Uh, another one, uh, once someone gets in the network, um, monitoring attacks as they happen or before they happen. And that's where a company like CyberX would play. Mm -hmm. Then there's a whole series of ones around identity, really knowing who's accessing the system. So that's where a company like Unity or um, um, uh, Great Horn um, or Secure comes into play. Um, and in the fourth category, and this is one where there isn't a lot of, uh, uh, this is a space that we think is, is increasingly important, is around prevention. And mm -hmm. uh, we invested in a company gosh, a little over a year ago, a year and a half ago, called Doc Authority that really mm -hmm. sort of monitors in real time all the documents large organizations have and seeing who has access and who should have access. And that can then fit into the, perim the perimeter defenses so that important documents don't get downloaded onto a thumb drive or emailed out of the organization. So we see it as those sort of four areas. The area that we think is going to come along over the next few years are uh, AI-based attacks. A lot of the attacks today are automated, but they're not really AI learning-based systems that are being used yet. And so we, we see this as, a, as an arms race. We're very interested in, um, in um, uh, defenses that can be sort of uh, learning uh, around how to uh, defend against that. But we, we think it's a fascinating space. 
And um, when you look at enterprise, are you also looking at the mid-sized um, enterprises or is it just large enterprise? No, no, we look, we look at all, but I will tell you, I'll tell you a little secret. Most SaaS companies think they should start with the small businesses and work their way up. What we've seen is the ones that seem to be successful most, the ones who start with solving the problems of the largest companies and work their way down. Well, it depends. We have one company that we look up to very much, and uh, it's an entrepreneur that I've known very well for 10 years. Uh, I don't know if you've ever met him, uh, Sridhar Vembu, who has done Zoho. Zoho is going to do a billion dollars in revenue next year, and they nice. go after the very small businesses, and they've really done a superb job, a completely bootstrap company, not one penny of venture capital in the business. And it's, it's really that's, superb. That's nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm going to ask you a few trend questions, John. Uh, first of those is, how do you process the current investment climate where capital is moving further and further upstream? How does a seed investor mitigate the Series A gap? With all these micro VCs um, who have come into the market, there is really a lot of seed capital available. And the number of uh, seed investments that are happening have gone up, you know, 50,000 to 70,000 seed investments a year. I don't know what will be this year's number, but that has been in the last few years, since 2013, I think. So, um, but the Series A number or venture capital financing number has kind of stayed steady at 1,200 to 1,500. So, what um, what is your um, how do you parse this trend? Is my real question. So, so it's it's really interesting. There's a lot of data points out there, and it's easy to string them together into a story. The thing to understand this is once a venture capitalist invests, probably two-thirds of their portfolio goes nowhere. One-third gets written off, one-third maybe you get your capital back. The last third is where the returns are, and a third of the third or 10% of the portfolio is where you're really going to make a difference with regard to your portfolio returns. And that's after a VC invests. And so mm -hmm. if you take a 1,000 deals, Actually, probably take that back. Take 10,000 deals that VCs look at. They may invest in 100, and out of the 100, 10 are the ones that are really going to move the portfolio. And out of those yeah. 10, 9 of the 10 are probably going to be sold, and only one goes public. So if you think about that, sort of filter as it goes along, there's a series C gap, there's a series A gap, there's a series B gap, there's a series there's a, there's a winnowing down at every single stage. And, um, you know, at the moment, there's a lot of talk uh, that there's 200 seed funds in New York and there's 600 new uh, venture capital funds that didn't exist a couple of years ago that are raising right. capital. Um, and then you go and talk to people in the angel networks and they say, well, you know, angels are a little bit less um, – engaged and they used to be, they're a little sort of exhausted by putting capital to work. And then you look at something like um, uh, AngelList, which used to allow anybody to post any deal on the platform, and now they're very selective. So I think there's, there's things that indicate there's more capital, there's things that indicate there's less capital. 
ultimately the good capitals work their way through all, the good companies work their way through all of these stages and do incredibly well. And I think what's most important for an entrepreneur to do is to find a firm, an angel, an advisor who really believes in them and wants to back them. Not just in good times when everything's great, but in bad times as well. Because even though over time you want the company to be a great success story, it'll have a lot of bumps along the way. And if you have someone who's there, um, really helping you out in the bad times, it increases the chance of you doing well. So, you know, with the current environment, you know, we're finding the good companies are raising money at, you know, really good valuations. Uh, the companies that haven't been able to find product market fit haven't executed appropriately. Uh, maybe they've been incredibly unlucky, but they're not uh, getting funded. Um, and, you know, the ones in between, they, they need to work out which direction they want to go in. You know, I think the determining factor is that hyper-growth is not a natural state. And venture capital requires hyper-growth, right? Your whole business premise is based on these hyper-growth companies. So maybe you find product market, maybe an entrepreneur finds product market fit, but cannot find that kind of heavy acceleration. And that means that they're gonna be building smaller companies and they have to build these smaller companies in a capital efficient way and um, exit quickly with you know, very small amounts of capital. And I think because we are in 2017, tons of things have already been built. The internet is more than 20 years old. There's a ton of stuff out there that has already been built, but there are lots of niche opportunities which need to be built not in the traditional venture capital model. And I think the fallacy of our industry is that we are trying to package all of these into the venture capital box, and that is, that is unviable and unsustainable. I, to to I totally agree. There's only a subset of businesses that should take outside money yeah. and a subset of those that should take venture money. There are many great businesses, and you gave an example earlier, where the company can grow substantially and not take uh, money from outside um, investors and do great. You know, well, that is a, an outlier. That level of success is an outlier. That is actually a venture scale success, company. All success are outliers. <laughs> but but I mean, think about yeah. it. I mean, if the company does five million, ten million, twenty million in revenue in a maybe not in a hyper fast scale, maybe in a linear scale. That is still a successful business. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, last trend question. I don't disagree yeah. at all. The last trend question is about unicorns. Uh, of course, you know, I would say around 14, 15, 16, we saw unicorn mania. Unicorn mania started to rationalize a little bit in 16. This year it has stabilized. But there is still a huge amount of late-stage capital out there. A lot of traditional VCs have raised very large funds. And um, as a seed investor, you could get buried under later-stage liquidation preferences if valuations run up like that. How do you protect yourself? 
when valuations run up, you're fine. It's when valuations stall or run back that you have issues. Um, but, but Both the, happens, the, right? Here, Once valuations yeah. runs up and then valuations stagnate <laughs> because the, the fundamentals don't deliver to valuations. Right. So, so we look at it this way, and, and, I, and I think it's an interesting lens. We look at it as whether the valuation is based on alpha or beta. And what I mean by alpha is would a value-based investor go, that's a reasonable valuation? Or is it all based on future promise and optionality and not really supported? A simple way to think about it, let's say you have revenue, you've had revenue for a few years, and you're growing revenue of 50 to 100% year over year. There's a multiple range for your business. It may be four times, it may be 10 times revenue run rate that's sort of reasonable. But if it's, you know, if the, if the round is done at 20 times revenue run rate and you don't believe that the revenues can accelerate but may decelerate from there, then there's, then there's quite a lot of beta, let alone if there's no revenue. So I, I think that it's the, your exposure is on the beta side with regard to those. I think there's also something else here which is often not discussed. Back in the mid-90s, the large bulge bracket firms, firms like um, Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley, would take companies public that were doing 30, 40, 50 million in revenue, mm -hmm. and they would raise the, you know, 20, 30, 50 million dollars in capital as part of those IPOs. And they did that because the fees, 7% of capital raise, was material to them. 20 years has gone by, these firms have grown to be much bigger, and now they don't want to take a company public unless the market cap is a billion, maybe 700 million. 500 million they really hate. And so companies now have to be significantly larger to go public. And not only that, but when they go public, they need to have accelerating revenue not decelerating revenue. And I think we've seen, yeah. you know, with a company like, like Blue Apron, decelerating revenue has not um, made it farewell in the public markets. And so what they've done, because the brokers are so large, they've basically taken out of the U.S. economy a really important strap of funding for companies that are doing 30 to 100 million in revenue. Um, that otherwise would have gone public. Some of them would have done become penny stocks. Others would have become, you know, very large companies with easier access to capital. And so what's happened is venture funds have raised larger funds to go and sort of fill in that gap. And that's why I think we're seeing the unicorns. They're staying public, they're staying private longer in part because they have to be, have so much more hat before they can go public now than what it used to be 20 years ago. And I think that's a disservice to the economy. I think it serves the business models of the large bulge bracket um, uh, banks and broker-dealers, but I really think it's a disservice to the economy. And thank goodness the venture capitalists have seen the, the ability to come in and help bridge these companies to the point that they can become significant enough and stable enough to go public. So I actually think the unicorns are 
an interesting group of companies. Now, are all of them going to make it? No. But a lot of them will, and they've made significant changes in people's lives. I look at companies like Airbnb and Uber and Lyft, and if it wasn't for the private markets, those companies wouldn't be there, and the tens of millions of people they touch every year wouldn't benefit from those companies and those ideas. I just wrote an article called, uh, Will SoftBank Own Silicon Valley? <laughs> I'm sure you're following what SoftBank is doing. What are your thoughts? I think, yeah, I, it's, it's a natural extension. But it's very difficult for SoftBank to cut a $200,000 check into a company right. when it's getting going, or a million check, or $10 million check. They want to build their a $1 trillion fund, Well, <laughs> Right, right. So their checks are much larger, and they're coming in and providing a need um, uh, to companies. And I think that's good. Yeah. I think that's good. All right, good. so uh, John... Wonderful conversation. We could go on and on, but we do have to work with some investor, uh, some entrepreneurs, and you have to run. I, but do let's follow up on the Indiegogo uh, relationship, and we also have a lot of enterprise deals in our portfolio that uh, we can start looking at together. Thank you for coming well, today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And um, you know, my you. Twitter handle is John underscore Franco. If anyone is interested in following me on Twitter.